Are we doing all that we can to stop the AIDS epidemic? You're listening to a special segment on healthcare policy on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest today is Dr. David Hardy. Dr. Hardy is Director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. He is also the Associate Professor of Medicine in Residence at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Thank you very much, Dr. Hardy, for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. To begin with, could you tell me the significance of the recent evidence that CDC has been underestimating the incidence of HIV in the United States? In August of 2008, the CDC made public its new projections for the number of new cases of HIV infection. Previously, we had been hearing that there had been about 40,000 new cases of HIV infection every year for about the past 10 years. And their new estimates, based upon a more sensitive testing tool, an ELISA test called a detuned ELISA, they actually upgraded that estimate from 40,000 per year up to 56,000 per year, a 40% increase. And not only was it occurring through their last counted year in 2006, but actually back through the past eight or nine years. So this wasn't a new increase. This was just better estimation of what's been happening for the past many years in terms of new cases of HIV infection. Within that statistic, could you break it out? Was there any surprising evidence that minority groups, gender groups had a disproportionate new part of this incidence? Well, in short, the epidemic was following along many of the same lines it had before, about 70% men, 30% women, primarily young individuals between the ages of 13 to 29, that 36% of them were in that group, the remainder being older, and some even about 10% over 50. But the major concern for me in terms of looking at this was that while the proportions of persons from risk groups such as high-risk heterosexuals and injection drug users was decreasing over the past 10 years, there was a significant increase among men who have sex with men, particularly young men of color. The great preponderance of these new cases were among African-American men and women and also among Latino men and women, followed by Caucasians, and then in lower numbers in Asian and Pacific Islanders. This increase among men who have sex with men was very troubling because the fact I think it really points out how our prevention message has really missed that group of individuals. The obvious question, why do you think we're missing it? Well, in large part, I think it's based upon the fact that much of our HIV testing is based upon old, outdated information. Since this is a program primarily for physicians, my strong, strong emphasis is to encourage physicians to stop trying to test people based upon their perception of their lifestyle or their habits. That old idea that you could pick out persons based upon what you thought or what they told you in a medical history really doesn't hold water any longer. And instead, follow what the CDC told us two years ago, and that is to test every American between the ages of 13 and 64 at least once. And if those persons indicate that they do have more than three sexual partners per year, use drugs, not just injection drugs, but any drugs, including alcohol, they should be tested on an annual basis, just like we check blood pressure, just like we check cholesterol, just like we check a lot of health maintenance issues on a regular basis. Then you're saying we should no longer use this concept of exceptionalism when we select people who should have an HIV test. You know, in years past, there was a place for HIV or AIDS exceptionalism, back when there was a huge amount of discrimination, when there was no treatment, when there was only problems oftentimes with finding out that someone was positive as opposed to therapeutic interventions that really work now. The days of exceptionalism really should start coming to an end, in my opinion, because there's a very 
important reason why persons should find out if they're positive or not because of the fact we now have therapies just like we do for high cholesterol, for high blood pressure, for diabetes that we can now treat this infection very, very successfully and therefore screening for it on a regular basis makes perfect sense. I have to question, uh, one thing you said is that doctors always tried to pick the people who should have it. I think doctors really wanted to do HIV on everybody and felt uncomfortable suggesting it to their patients that they could possibly be HIV positive. Like you say, if it became part of the routine of checking a cholesterol, then there would be no judgment that the doctor would be passing by saying, I, you know, I think you should have an HIV test. You're very right, Moore. I mean, I think the thing that made HIV testing difficult in the past was because it involved two very sensitive issues, sex and drugs. And people kind of limited to those areas really entirely. The fact that also that in many states the testing required that a written informed consent be done before the test be taken also set up roadblocks that really made the test difficult for health practitioners to do. In many states, including my own here in California, the requirement for written informed consent has been uh, eliminated. And while we cannot test people against their will on a regular basis, there are situations which can be covered for that legally, but not in routine practice. It is important, I think, for physicians to simply suggest or recommend that as part of an annual examination, but at least once in everyone's lifetime, that HIV testing be done. And if sex or drugs or those kind of issues are too sensitive to talk about, just recommend the test and say, I do this for all my patients. That way it gets the job done without perhaps broaching topics which are difficult for a patient and physician to, to discuss. The question of consent, certainly many states are still struggling with this. California is ahead of a lot of states. The other part of CDC's recommendation is that counseling be offered. But that is in itself is often a difficult thing. How do you answer CDC's recommendation that not only is consent being waived and you don't need consent to draw this, but also that counseling be offered? Well, you know, what we've tried to do with this situation and many around the country is to not eliminate the referral for counseling. What we're eliminating is the more onerous process of throwing a four or five page document in front of someone, asking them to read it, in which very many concerning sort of ideas are put in there, and then having a person sign it as if they were signing a contract. Many people balk just at the look of that, and physicians don't do it because it takes up too much time. So while we're eliminating written consent, we're still giving the people the option. It's called opt-out. You know, a physician or healthcare worker would recommend the test with the patient's verbal approval, which can be documented in a written document of the medical record, and then the test is done. If the test is positive, then there's certainly lots of available referral counseling centers that are already set up to which patients can be sent. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a special segment on health care policy on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and with me is Dr. David Hardy, Director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. And we're talking about, are we really doing enough to prevent this continuing epidemic of HIV. Earlier on, you mentioned the young having a disproportionate amount of new cases. Is this because, like many young people who drive cars too fast, they don't really think it's going to happen to them? Or is it a question of education and the young haven't had an opportunity to be educated to the risk of this disease? 
Well, you know, I think it's a mixture of both those things. But, you know, for many of us who, as physicians, worked and lived through the HIV epidemic of the 80s and early 90s, you know, the horror of how horrible the deaths were that people experienced due to this disease hold a very strong place in our memory. Not something we look forward to recounting, but something that we need to remember. Among young individuals who perhaps were not born until the 1980s or early 90s at this point now, who have no idea about what happened during that period of time, you know, AIDS is a historical memory for them, if even part of their world at all. And again, this is something that really needs to be emphasized in terms of the fact that a sexually transmitted disease can, in fact, kill you. You know, again, because of the great success story of HIV therapies, the horror, the terrible sort of conditions HIV can be associated with have really gotten lost. And while in many ways that's a wonderful success story, on the other hand, it no longer serves as a deterrent to people having unsafe sex with the idea of if I get HIV, I'll just take pills, no big deal. You know, I think that's some of the problem that is really harming our young people today. Do you think the media is getting this message across? And how can they help? I think the one thing the media could really help with is to certainly laud the great success stories and strides made, the progress of HIV therapies and how people now can take these medications and live very good lives. What they can't forget, however, is the fact that it's still better not to become infected and really start putting out the prevention message. You know, one thing that the Centers for Disease Control has really unfortunately been very handicapped with has been talking about sex. You know, just simple, talking about sex in in straightforward and clear terms and arming our young people with information that they can use to protect themselves. You brought up an interesting point that we now have drugs. The highly active antiretroviral therapy has been a, a real success story. But do you think that part of the gay population that's on medication thinks that they're no longer infected and therefore will have sex and in some cases don't even tell their partner what their serology might be? You know, you, you bring up another tricky question there. You know, among men who have sex with men, primarily gay men here in the United States, the HIV epidemic has been a part of life for over 25 years now for many of them. This is something that has become so commonplace that oftentimes it becomes, you know, not even discussed because it's almost assumed. Just to give you statistics, you know, somewhere between 30 to 50 percent of many men who have sex with men in, in our urban community are HIV positive. You're right. You know, one of the problems that has occurred, I think, also with therapeutic success has come with the fact that if a patient's virus is undetectable, meaning the assay can't detect it because it's so low, is oftentimes confused with the word gone or zero or no longer present. And with that, the assumption is made, I can't infect anyone else because I'm on medications, which, of course, is not true, is not true. And they're still concerned about whether transmission can occur because no virus or undetectable virus in the blood does not mean undetectable virus in other body fluids, such as semen or even vaginal secretions. So, again, that's something that education really needs to be put out there to tell people that those who are HIV positive and on medications do need to practice safe sex. So we're really talking about a terrible epidemic that really has an answer and that we actually even, it sounds like, have the tools if we will apply them. I think it's very true. I think it's very true. And I think that, you know, what I look forward to in the future is working with the new director of the HIV and viral hepatitis and tuberculosis section of HIV, a fellow by the name of Kevin Fenton, a very intelligent physician and epidemiologist who hopes to be part of the new national plan for HIV and AIDS in the United States. And hopefully part of that will be frank discussion about what safe sex is. 
So you look forward to that instead of spending so much of our dollars on the concept of just say no and abstinence, there will be a shift towards other methods of prevention. Well, you know, I think just say no will work for some. Abstinence will work for some. But the thing we need to keep in mind is that, you know, when someone first becomes sexually active and those years of discovery and experimentation take off, it's very difficult to try to interject any sort of cognitive message, any sort of cognitive message. You know, libido is such a strong human force that I think by trying to regulate that with ideas of just don't do it as my you know, older individual telling me to do, doesn't give individuals much of an option. And we need to give young people options for how to take care of themselves, protect themselves. You know, we've been talking today about a terrible epidemic that's been going on for 25 years and according to statistics is rising. And yet we hear today from Dr. David Hardy that we do have the tools to prevent and to bring this epidemic under control. I want to thank him for being our guest today, and you've been listening to a special segment on healthcare policy on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. And if you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. <laughs>